All right, you guys ready? Everybody ready? Everybody ready? <laughs> hey, before we begin, I, I just, one of the things I, I do really appreciate about our church is the people who commit to praying for all of us and everything that's going on in our church. And this next week, I have the privilege, really an opportunity to take high school students with a couple other adults down to an apologetics conference at Biola University in Los Angeles. Uh, we, this will be the third year that we've done this. It really, it's, the whole trip is amazing, but talking about going to a place where you get to learn from people who have for decades worked through the reason for why they believe what they believe and sharing that with high school students is so important. And to watch them realize that there are answers for the reasons that the, that the, for the faith that they have and to be able to have that for themselves but also to share with their friends is really important. So I, I would just ask that you, if you can remember to pray for us this next week as we go down to LA and spend that time together. It's a, it's a great time, but um, yeah, and a really important time for those kids to be fed, all of us to be fed, really. So we are in the book of Acts, as you can see on the screen there. And last week I finished chapter 15. So we're going to start chapter 16 today. And at, at the heart of what we're going to look at really is this phrase that you hear in, I, I guess you, maybe, maybe you have, maybe, maybe not, in Christian circles about the, you know, how do we describe the purpose of life? What is the meaning of life? And so you'll hear this phrase, people talk about you know, the will of God for my life. What is the will of God in my life? Now, that, that's a question that I think everyone asks, maybe not what's God's will for my life, but what's pur purpose in life? What's the meaning? Why am I here? And I know that we feel like we're, a, a, you know, a super advanced society today in some ways, te technologically we are. You know, we look back at ancient religious cultures and we say, oh, you know, that was superstitious and they're so, you know, backwards back then. But we're really not that much different today in a lot of ways. I mean, we are very religious people. Even in America, where you have a large group of people who would call themselves nuns, meaning they have no religious affiliation, they still have religious exercises in their lives. People still refer to Mother Nature as, as though there's some spiritual force on the earth that lets us know when we've not treated her well. People still read their horoscopes. And there are a lot of religious behaviors that people practice. But for the people who follow God, really what we're asking ourselves is, well, what is the will of God for my life? If he is the one who's created the universe and everything in between it, then it would be really wise to figure out how to live in harmony with him and his creation. You know, it's one of the reasons that the Bible uses this phrase, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, because it's recognizing that there is a God and you're not him that puts you in the place to then receive God's will for your life, rather than trying to just figure it out on your own. And when you do that, when you recognize God is sovereign, he's in control of all things, we do have free will, those things exist together. Sometimes God closes doors in our lives. Sometimes he opens doors. It's not a coincidence how these things happen. God, God is the one who, who is doing that. We're going to see that really at the heart of our story today. 
And this is important to remember that the book of Acts is not primarily about the Apostle Paul or Peter or any of the missionaries. The book of Acts is primarily about the, the will of God being accomplished by, by his spirit through these missionaries. So it's really applicable for us today because the same thing is true in our lives, that the spirit of God is, the will of God is being accomplished in the spirit of God through us in our lives. So if you have your Bibles, we'll be in Acts 16, um, verses 1 through 18. But just a quick catch up on how we got here. Last week, if you were here, you know that in the 15th chapter, we have Paul and Barnabas, and these are, these are pillars of the early church. And they're in a town called Antioch. is the first place that people are called Christians. Get the multi-ethnic, multicultural uh, hub of Jesus followers. The Holy Spirit has come upon them, and it becomes a center for sending out missionaries. Paul and Barnabas were chosen by the Holy Spirit. They did this huge first missionary journey, and they decide they need to go back and encourage all of the people that they visited on their last journey but they cannot decide on who to take. As a matter of fact, they get in such a, uh, such an, a, a harsh argument over whether or not to bring John Mark that they split and they, and they don't continue together. So Barnabas takes Mark and they sail to Cyprus and Paul takes Silas and they head north. That's kind of really the route that we're going to follow today is that black arrow going up and northwest through that area through there. That's really where uh, we're picking up today. So again, if you have your Bibles, Acts chapter 16, first 18 verses, it's a lot. So I couldn't even fit it all in your notes, but you can follow along on the slides. I'll have it up here. If you have your Bibles, obviously open up and read along with me. Starting in verse one, he, this is Paul, came to Derby and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was a Jew and a believer, but whose father was a Greek. The brothers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. That's of Timothy. Paul wanted to take him along the journey, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they traveled from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. Paul and his companions traveled through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Mas in Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. And after Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. From Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrake, and the next day to Neapolis. From there, we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony and a leading city of that district of Macedonia. And we stayed there several days. 
On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to a river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the woman who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, who was a worshiper of God. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Once we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling. This girl followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, these men are the servants of the most high God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned around and said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And at that moment, the spirit left her. Father, thank you so much for our time together tonight to be able to read your word, the stories of your faithful who are as flawed as we are, and yet give us this picture of what it looks like to trust you and your will above all else in their lives. Lord, I pray that your spirit would speak to each one of us in the way that we need to hear from you tonight, that your spirit would lead me Give me the words you want said tonight, Lord. I thank you, Jesus, for the stories we have of these men and women of the early church. They give us encouragement of what it looks like to trust and pray for the people that we know have not come to know you yet. So, Lord, guide us tonight in the understanding of your word. Help us to respond to you and help us to always be grateful for your grace and mercy that comes through your son, Jesus Christ. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen. So I, I, I mentioned in the, in the very beginning this idea of the will of God for our lives. And it is all over this passage because this is not the trip that Paul planned. Th- these are not the people that Paul planned on ministering to. And, and yet it's, it's all unexpected, but this is exactly what God wants to happen. And I think that's often true in our lives as well. The unexpected is what God uses in our lives in so many ways. I mean, just there's some confusion in here. You look at this and you say, okay, the Holy Spirit doesn't allow them to go north into this place, uh, Bithynia, but it also, the Spirit doesn't, he doesn't allow them to go south, really into the southern part of Asia Minor, which is Ephesus. Why, why does the Spirit not allow them to do that? You're looking around like I'm waiting for an answer. Yeah, yeah. This is like youth group. No, no answers. Here we go. Um, it, 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 it doesn't tell us. Luke doesn't tell us. Luke just says the Spirit won't allow them. And look, we've got to be careful. I said this last week. We must not fill in those blanks with answers that we do not have. All we know is the Spirit does not allow them to go in. What we do know, what we can see very clearly, is that God is opening some doors and closing others. God is the one who is not allowing them to go north or south. He's got a different plan for them, which is west. 
Paul later, after his third missionary journey, would write to the Corinthian church about this. And he would say, look, I, I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ and found that the Lord had opened a door for me. I mean, look, look at how he looks at this too. He's not even saying God closed doors for me. He says, God opened a door for me. Wasn't the one I was looking for, but it's the one that he opened. And so that's where I went. You know, I, I have this conversation pretty frequently with high school students who are looking for, you know, they're, they're applying to colleges or if I'm counseling someone who's in a relationship and they're wondering, you know, is this the person that God wants me to marry? And the assumption behind a, a lot of those questions is that, that God has two doors in front of me. One, one is right and one is wrong. And I don't want to choose the wrong one. But having like door number one and door number two, that sounds more like a game show than God's will for our lives, Right. Tell us, Bob, what's behind door number two, you know? Oh, you guessed wrong, right? That's not really how God operates. As a matter of fact, there's often more than one answer. And I'll tell you how I answer every single one of those students' questions. Which college should you go to? The one you can be faithful to God in. Is this relationship okay? Can you be faithful to God in it? I mean, that, that's, that's really the heart of where I go with them. See, I think that's the true thing about open doors. Open doors are places that we can be faithful to God in. See, unless God makes it absolutely clear to you that he does not want you somewhere, or he does not want you to have something, whether that's a job, whether it's a college, whether it's a relationship, then the answer is, can I be, the, to the question is, can I be faithful? And if you can, then go for it. I mean, look what Paul says again to the church in Corinth. Whatever you do, wherever you go, what, just do it all for the glory of God. And if you can do that, you know, God will direct you where he wants you to go. I mean, can we sin for the glory of God? Of course not. So if you are in a relationship that requires you, that, that puts you in the position to compromise what God says about relationships, that's a closed door. If you, you're looking at a job, and maybe it's really lucrative, but it's going to ask you to compromise your integrity, that, that should be a closed door in your life. You know, I, I, one of the pictures that I always go back to, and I'm, I'm talking to people about this, is Adam and Eve in the garden. And this is a great picture of exactly what I'm talking about. So Adam and Eve are in the garden, and the serpent comes to Eve, and he says, did God really say that you... You can't eat from this tree. And, and Eve responds clearly. She says, no, God said we may eat of the fruit of the garden. And that word fruit is plural. There are a number of yeses in here that are just fine for us to choose. There's one that we need to avoid. And that's the one God said, no. That's a closed door. But there's a whole bunch of other yeses out here. Sometimes God will step in and physically close a door in our life. Oftentimes because we've not listened to him very well. We've gone somewhere that we shouldn't have, and he'll close that door. And I'll tell you what, when God does that, that, that is one of the most loving things that he can do for you. To stop you from continuing to go towards a place that's just going to bring you and the people around you harm. I mean, think about what he does for Jonah. We talked about this just a month ago, right? Jonah says, I'm not going to Nineveh, God. I'm going to get on a ship, and I'm going to go as far away from them as I can. 
And God doesn't allow him to get to Tarshish. He, he closes that door and, you know, puts him on a first-class submarine trip back to Nineveh. And that was the most loving thing that he could do for him. You know, we may not like it. We may not like what God does when he closes those doors in our lives. But that's what it looks like to have faith. That's what it looks like to trust God, especially when we don't understand, which is exactly what we see Paul and his companions doing here. It says, when they came to the border, Mys- the border of Mysia and they tried to enter Bithynia, the Spirit of God would not allow them to go in. So what do they do? They pass by. They keep going. And this is not a small trip, by the way. It's like over 100 miles that they're going to travel right here. And you know what? There's no record in there of them complaining. There's no record of them arguing with God about why they need to have this or go north or south. They, they don't. They just, they just go where he sends them. And I don't know how long that took, but I do know it, it took a great amount of faith for them to trust that God knew what they needed better than they knew themselves. So there, there really are two things that I want to look at just about closed doors. I mean, this is a gener- generality. Two, two things that we can learn from closed doors, they generally mean one of two things. No or not yet. Nope, you're not going to Bith- Bithynia, Paul. Um, not yet, because you know what? He wasn't allowed to go south into Asia Minor to Ephesus, but if you followed that arrow, when he comes back, he will go through Ephesus. God will open that door. That's a, that's a not yet for him. We, we, we have no record of Paul ever making it north into Bithynia. But th- this is so cool. The first letter that Peter writes that we have anyway, um, it says this. I love how God connects these dots in the scripture for us. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to God's elect, exiles throughout the province of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. The same spirit that kept them out is working in these places to bring people into obedience to Jesus Christ. And so... Paul wasn't allowed to go in, but God sent somebody because there are believers there. So sometimes you and I might not be the right person for what God wants to accomplish. He may have someone else in mind that he wants to send, and that's exactly what he does. You know, I, I think one of the, the, the greatest characteristics that you can see in people who really are at peace with God's will in their lives are, are people who can openly celebrate the success of others. Whether they think they deserve it or not. I mean, it's something in my own life that I've really worked through to be happy for people that God gives grace to. And that's what the word grace means. It means gift. It means getting something you don't deserve. And when you see that in, 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 in other people, you can see, well, they're really at peace. They're not trying to play God and be the judge of whether or not this person deserves it or that person. Look, we, I think we're all at some point tempted to play that role, right? What, why do they deserve to have? They don't deserve to have what they have. You know, it's one of the reasons that I put Psalm 73 in your notes and the questions to follow up with later in this week because it is a, 
is a perfect picture that this is not a new question, it's not a new struggle for people. And, and the arc of the story of Psalm 73 is great. He starts off, I am afflicted all day and night. I look around and the evil prosper and it looks like the good just get sick and die. And God, where are you, where are you at in all of this? It's that, it's that why them, why not me? But he eventually comes around to the place where he says, you know what? My heart, my mind was changed when I went into the sanctuary and I am reminded that God is good. He's the one in charge of all these things. And that is a picture of someone who is trusting the will of God. No matter what they see going on around them, they trust that God is good. Because look, I, we can see it in our culture right now and it, it's in the church as well, but I just, envy and jealousy are cancer for the soul. Absolute cancer for our souls. And that's where we go when we can't celebrate the success of other people. If you can learn to do that, trust me, you will find a peace that many people never will. I mean, I think this is a little bit what Paul's talking about when he writes this to the church in Philippi. He says, I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances. I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. One of the things that Paul is saying here is I recognize that when I have, it's because God has given to me. And when I don't have, it's because God has taken that away from me. And that's okay because I have God. He, he's my strength to endure whatever it is he chooses, whatever path he wants me to be on. I can, I can trust him. Now, just a quick side note here. Do, do any of you have an idea of where Philippi is located? It's in Macedonia, which is where God is sending Paul right here. He's blocking him from the north and the south so that he can get to Macedonia. And as we're going to see, he's going to have a great impact, so much so that uh, clearly we have a church there at some point that he's writing letters back to. So what is the result? What does God do with this? Well, as Luke records, when Paul has that vision of a man who says, we need you in Macedonia, they pack up their stuff, they go. And that requires them to go a long distance, get on a ship, sail, <laughs> go into Macedonia, they get there. And it says, on the Sabbath, they go outside of the city gate to a river where they expect to find a place of prayer. Now, normally on the Sabbath, they would go to the synagogue. That's what they would do. Jewish men, they would go to the synagogue. So clearly there's not a synagogue in Philippi. So the next place to look for Jewish worshipers is outside of the city by a river, which is exactly what they do. And they come across a group of women. Now, some of these women are, are Jewish women and some of them aren't, but it's the Sabbath and they're out finding a place of prayer. One of these women is named Lydia. She's a, a, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira. Luke says she was a worshiper of God, and I, and I absolutely love this line. And the Lord opened her heart. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. So Lydia, 
is a businesswoman, and she's selling purple cloth. And if you know anything about this area or this time, purple clothing, it's a, it's a royal color, royal clothes, very expensive to make. So Lydia is, is basically running a high-end clothing boutique for, for wealthy people, which means Lydia is wealthy herself. Luke also says she's a worshiper of God. Now that phrase sometimes is translated God-fearer in the Bible. Just means that she's not Jewish, but she's also not following any pagan religion, which, you know, kind of puts her in this limbo culturally because those are the two options. You have the Jewish culture and then you have the pagan culture. There's not really a, you know, a secular non-religious culture back then. And, and she's found herself not going through the full rights to become a Jew, but she's hanging out with these Jewish women where Paul and his group finds her. And the Lord opens her heart to receive his message. I mean, those are such encouraging words for us to read. And I'll, I'll tell you what, this, this may be the most important thing that you hear all night. If you are someone who has been faithfully praying for friends or family members, coworkers, anybody to come to know Jesus, and you have not seen fruit, you've not seen that come to fruition in their lives, Keep praying for them. Don't stop praying for them. Memorize this verse if you need to. I mean, it's not a promise. It's a reminder that God does change hearts. He does open hearts at any stage of life. So you could keep praying for people, not seeing that fruit for years and years and years. And, and someday God may choose to open their hearts. So faithfully keep praying for them. You know, statistics will say that 85% of people, at least in America, will come to faith in Christ or to profess faith in Christ between the ages of 4 and 14. It's one of the reasons that we have such an emphasis on our children's ministry, on our youth ministry. It's why we do Kids Quest and Breakout and youth group. It's why we take kids to apologetic conferences in Los Angeles because, you know, this is such an important age for the formation of their lives. But there's also a 15% in there, isn't there? A 15% that come to Christ later in life. I, I'm one of those. My mom is one of those. You probably know a number of those. So keep praying for those people because we never know what God is going to do with our prayers. Now, I also think, just one last note here on this, it's interesting that Lydia asks Paul, she says, if you think I am a, a genuine believer, please come and stay in my home. It's as though she recognizes that a believer is not just someone who intellectually agrees with these facts out here about Christ, who he is, it's someone whose life literally has been changed because God has become the most important thing to them. And what does Lydia do right after she receives the message from Paul? Her entire household is baptized. And then she invites Paul, and there's four of them, and there's Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke here, to come stay in her house. I, I think it's a, it's a great question. I think it's a, a question that comes from genuine faith to ask somebody, do you see this in my life? And clearly it is a part of her life. You know, um, 
This is something actually I was talking about Tom with this in the discussion group up earlier uh, today about Lydia and Philippi and how important Philippi becomes to the story of Paul. Because if you look just later from the Philippians passage that I read about, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. One of the things he does is he thanks Philippi, the people of Philippi, for their financial support of his ministry. Do, do you not think Lydia is a part of that financial support? I mean, she's been impacted. She's a wealthy person in Philippi. She's likely becomes an influential part of this early church. I mean, it's a, it's a great detail that I, I love that, that we get to see um, all of these people brought in and their gifts being used for the kingdom. Now, the last person here Luke tells us about really is at the opposite end of the spectrum really socially speaking, and Luke just refers to her as a slave girl. The language is unique there. She's probably a teenager because if she was older, they would refer to her as a woman, but they call her a girl, which means she's a younger girl, And which begs the question, how in the world does she get to this place where she's being used by other people if she's a teenager? Well, there's, there's, a, there's a couple options. Either she was an orphan or it's possible that her parents sold her because they just they couldn't handle really what was going on in, in her life. I mean, this girl is possessed by a spirit that gives her the ability to tell uh, the future. And it's not, you know, it's not this picture of like a, you know, a gypsy with a bandana and a globe telling you about your future. She, she is someone who uh, is indwelt by an, an, an evil spirit. It's not the Holy Spirit. This is, you know, the language here says that she's shouting or she's yelling. She's shrieking at them. Matter of fact, the English, the root word for what they would refer to a person like this back then, it gives us our English word ventriloquist. And the reason is because there are more than one voice coming out of this girl. Not her voice at different levels, but different voices coming out of this poor girl. And the people are taking advantage of this and earning a great deal of money because of that spirit in her. I mean, this is, this is like, I mean, if you picture a horror movie, this is, this is a horror movie, what's going on with this girl. And I would love to say, I mean, I absolutely would love to say that this, I mean, this would be a great movie scene, would it not? This is Paul and his disciples are coming in here and you've got this spirit and dwelt young girl in the crowd somewhere and Paul searches her out and says, young woman, I can see you are in pain. Come out and be healed by the name of Jesus. I mean, it'd be a really powerful scene, but that's not what Luke says happens. Luke's, Luke says she follows them around for days until Paul becomes so annoyed that he turns around and says, okay, fine, in the name of Jesus Christ, Spirit come out of her, be gone, and the spirit listens. Again, that's not the Holy Spirit going out of her. That's an evil spirit. I'd also like to say the story ended with her becoming a part of the church. But we don't know actually what happens to her. All we know is that she experienced the great healing of God through his missionaries and Paul at this time. So, you know, one of the questions that I was working through when I was looking at this text, was why does Paul choose these stories? See, there's, there's no doubt that they had a 
really large influence on the people there in Philippi because, like I said, we've got a letter to a church in Philippi later. There are a number of people there that become believers. So why does Luke choose specifically Lydia, this wealthy businesswoman, and then a slave girl? And then next week, actually, Dan's going to get to look at a jailer because after this, they're, they're going to get thrown in jail for casting this demon out of this girl because it's going to financially affect her owners. So you really have three people that Luke singles out here. And I think one of the reasons he does it is because if you look at where they land on the social spectrum, you have a wealthy businesswoman, self-sufficient, successful, and you have a person who is extremely sick, who's a slave at the very bottom of the social order. And if you look at the jailer, he's, he's a blue-collar guy who's kind of in the middle. See, one of the reasons that I think that Luke chooses these is because he wants to show us that no matter where you are at in life, that everyone needs Jesus. Rich, wealthy, self-sustaining, the poorest of poor, the sickest of sick, and the guy in the middle who's just going to work and trying to feed his family, every one of us needs Jesus. This is not like a, you know, the t-shirt, y'all need Jesus, which is kind of a comeback. This is a serious thing. Everyone needs Jesus, no matter where you are. And Paul, uh, again, would say as much in the third chapter of Galatians, just about our equality in Christ. He says, in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith, for you were all baptized into Christ. You've all clothed yourselves with Christ. So now there is no Jew or Gentile, slave nor free, male or female. All are one in Christ Jesus. All are one. The slave girl, the wealthy businesswoman, the jailer, all one in Christ I mean, that's, see, he's the reason that we're here tonight. He, he's the reason that we gather every Sunday to work through these stories of what God has done in, in our lives through so many people who are faithful to him. We're not here because we share the same social status or backgrounds. We're here because God has opened our hearts in the same way that he opened Lydia's. You know, these stories, I think, show us how much God wants, he wants to be what unifies his people. He wants to be what brings us together. Not any other shared common interest, just him. Not our expectations about how life should go or not go or whether or not these people deserve something or don't deserve something, but because of who Christ is in all of us. You know, if you were to ask me 30 years ago what I would be doing today, this is not it. No, no way. The reason I'm here is because this is where God wants me today. And when there will be a day he chooses to tell me to do something else, then I'll listen and go wherever he wants to send me. But until that day comes, I'm going to continue to ask God to open the heart's of people in the same way that he's opened mine and the same way that he's opened yours. I want this church to be a community of people who recognize that, that we need Jesus. He is what unifies us together. And it's why 
we share communion together. It's why we do this. See, Jesus told his disciples, when you do this, when you break this bread, when you share this cup together, you're you're being reminded that you need me. You're being reminded of what I did for you. And, And they needed to be reminded of what brought them together just as much as we do today. And one of the things that I absolutely love about communion is it is a time where the church, rich, poor, sick, healthy, whoever you are, we get to together proclaim the truth that Jesus is Lord, that his body was broken for us and his blood was shed for the new covenant that brings grace and mercy into our lives through God's only son. So when we take these elements, we're not just taking a bread and and a cup. We are collectively proclaiming Jesus is Lord and he will come back. And we await that day and we get to celebrate it together. So the way that we do communion together is we'll start in the very back row and we'll have you guys come up the outside and you can walk up to the table either side of the table go back up the center aisle back to your seats keep the elements with you and then we will take them all together and we can start that now we take the bread, we acknowledge that Jesus' body was broken for the forgiveness of our sins. And as he asked his disciples to do, we do this in remembrance of his sacrifice for us. Likewise, when we take the cup, We recognize Jesus was a man who bled on the cross. 
And his blood represents the new covenant between God and us, the covenant of grace and mercy and forgiveness for those who believe and trust in him. And so we recognize that it was not free for God to give us those things. Although they are free for us to receive, they came the shed blood of his son, Jesus. And so when we take the cup, we do this in remembrance of him. Father God, we thank you for sending your son. We thank you for the life that Jesus lived. We thank you that he willingly gave his life on the cross for us. We thank you, Lord, that you have opened our hearts to respond to him. And Lord, we continue to pray for those whose hearts have not yet been opened. Father, show them the same grace and mercy that you have shown us and help us to remember to pray for them every single day that more and more people would know you as their Lord and Savior and be invited into the kingdom of God. Father, we thank you for our time tonight. We thank you for your word. We pray all these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. You can pass your cups to the outside or to wherever Rex is. And we're going to continue our worship with our offering. After that, we're going to close with a song. Thank you guys so much for being here tonight. Have a great Sunday.